Welcome to Passing Notes with Ashley and Shanda. I'm Shanda Sung, and I'm a comedian. And I'm Ashley Morgan, and I'm a farmer. We've been best friends since we were nine years old. Welcome to our show, where we teach each other all kinds of things that cover our wide range of knowledge and interests. And today's episode is Bad Decisions. Or an alternate title could be, uh, what's the worst that could happen? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure it'll be fine. (laughs) Gosh, what are we going to talk about up top? Uh, Because you and I have never made any bad decisions ever. No, I've never made a single one. I swear it. (laughs) And if you're my parents or grandparents listening, you know that to be true. (laughs) As far as you know, that's true. (laughs) One of the first things that came to mind when I thought about bad decisions was the time that I was at a roller derby after party and I may or may not have been intoxicated (laughs) and I thought that I could do the worm. Uh Oh, I cannot do the worm. (laughs) So you just looked like you were convulsing (laughs) on the floor. No, there was like a tunnel of people and people were like doing dance moves down it. So like all the attention (laughs) of the room and I came up, I even like. I had my ID and my debit card and my bra, and I, like, made a show of, like, taking them out and handing them to my friend to hold on to. Uh. And then I, like, dove face first into the floor (laughs) and hit my chin so bad that I got a massive bruise (laughs) all across the bottom of my chin. Yeah, and then I had to just be like, I I think it happened during the bout. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, I'm embarrassed for you. (laughs) <laughs> it was so embarrassing because <laughs> like I'm like well you gotta like jump high I still don't know how to do the worm I and I'm never gonna try again <laughs> because I made that bad decision and I'm not interested in making it again uh, yeah real yeah dumb. that is dumb <laughs> good for you <laughs> <laughs> well I don't know I think I got yeah. you beat though Yeah, Yeah, I would have to say my really bad, dumb decision that I ever made was I kind of moved to Colorado for a dude. Oh, yes. Not officially, (laughs) but it was a factor in there, and I lived to regret that. (laughs) So I was dating a... I mean, not like for that long. You didn't regret it for that long. I didn't. It ultimately ended up good. Uh, For me, not for him, but for me, it ended up good. (laughs) But yeah, I was dating a guy when I was living in Indianapolis and he was living in Denver and I had gone to visit him a couple times and we went on hikes and we went camping and it was a lot of fun and the state was beautiful and I decided I wanted a change and I wanted to move to this really awesome town where my boyfriend was and so I packed up everything and moved to Colorado where I really only knew like one person, him, and yeah. we had only been dating for four months at the time, yeah. and we broke up a few months later. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, within a year, I ended up meeting Tyler, so it, it ended up well. I yeah. mean, it was great, but... Yeah, if you're going to leave anywhere to go anywhere for a dude, like Indianapolis to Denver is not the yeah. worst. You know, at least you didn't go Denver to Indianapolis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) No shade to Indianapolis. Okay, a little shade to Indianapolis. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. It's fine. It's fine. But yeah, I kind of did that. But it's That was kind of dumb. There are no mountains. Well, that's, I mean, that's not the worst. 
So I think overall we've done pretty good. When I was 20, I believe, I drove cross country by myself to go to a festival where I only knew one person. (laughs) I was meeting one person there, drove cross country by myself. I mean, that seems like a good decision. That's a great idea. Yeah. The only part of that decision that was bad was that you didn't bully me into going with you. I know. What's that about? I don't know. I don't know what the deal was with that. I don't know why I ended up going by myself. Like, I don't know if I had, like, nobody could go with me or what, because I wasn't typically at that point in my life a travel by yourself kind of person. (laughs) So it had to have been other things going on of why I didn't invite other people to go with me or... Yeah. Because I didn't go by myself anytime after that, so... (laughs) Not putting oil in my car that I owned when I was 16, ever. That was a bad decision. I remember that. (laughs) It didn't work out well. Yeah. It was a $600 car. Like, it did not have that much life left in it. (laughs) Anyway, but I I certainly sped that along. Yeah, I euthanized that car. Yeah. (laughs) I could say that getting involved in a multi-level marketing company was probably a bad decision for me girl which i yeah. told i you told know, that story in in a different episode i believe it was our yeah pyramid schemes pyramid episode schemes. so yeah i told that story go back and listen to that if you want all the details but that was a bad idea that put me in debt for a long time yeah yeah you're not alone with that though that's pretty mm-hmm. common so I think that the bad decisions that we're going to talk about today fully trump every every dumb thing that we've done. So we can leave this episode feeling good about ourselves and hopefully our listeners can too. Yeah, I think both of our stories end very poorly. (laughs) So yes. Yeah. Well, actually, why don't we get right into it? Because my story's kind of long and extensive and let's, let's get right into it. All right. I can't wait. So... Today, I am going to talk about the Donner Party, which honestly, I did not know a lot about this story except for jokes that had been made and references in movies and shows, that kind of pop culture thing. But honestly, I didn't really know a lot about the story itself. Our story starts in the spring of 1846. There were a bunch of families that were getting together in Illinois, and they were moving to California via the Oregon Trail. Mm -hmm. The main families to be a part of this were the Donner family and the Reed family. So you'll often hear it called the Donner-Reed party. Yeah. It started off with George Donner, along with his wife and five kids, George's brother, with his wife and seven kids and six single men that were there to kind of help them. Uh-huh. Then there was James Reed with his wife and four kids, his wife's mother, who actually died pretty early in the trip. She was older, so I think mm-hmm. she was like 70, so she didn't make it very far into the trip. And then Reed had five men to help him. They take their little group and they travel to Independence, Missouri. And that's where the Oregon Trail pretty much started. I've got uh, family in Independence, Missouri. Ah. Also the home of Harry Truman. Your family probably was like, let's head west. And they got there and they were like, that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's far enough. <laughs> this is where it all started to go bad for the Donner Party, so I think I'm going <laughs> to just sit tight. <laughs> so they started their trip in Independence, Missouri. And within a week, they ended up catching up to another larger wagon train. And so they kind of, for lack of a better term, hitched their wagons to their group. And mm -hmm. then behind them came even more smaller families, smaller groups. So they all just kind of traveled in this big pack together. Mm -hmm. So within this group, it was a lot of wagons, a lot of animals, supplies, and most notably, a lot of women and children. It was family group, mm. essentially. Yeah. Now, a little bit about the Oregon Trail. It started at Independence, Missouri, which is on the Missouri-Kansas border. So then mm. the trail would move northwest through a corner of Kansas, go across Nebraska, Wyoming, Idaho, and into Oregon. By 1846, this was a very well-traveled trail. It was mm. hard. It was not yeah. without its issues. I talked a little bit about it in the transportation episode when we talked about routes from coast yeah. to coast. So by this point, it was pretty well traveled, but it still had its hardships. But there were stops along the way where you could replenish your supplies, where you could get help if you needed. If things were broken, people would meet you along the way and you could get some help sometimes. Uh, the mm -hmm. trail was very well established, so people didn't get lost very often from the trail. And like I said, there were places along the way where you could stop and, and there were just resources along along the, the trail. Mm -hmm. For example, Fort Laramie, as you crossed over into Wyoming, which keep in mind, I'm saying present day borders. It was yeah. Wyoming territory and Nebraska territory, but I'm saying by today's standards, what states they were just to make it easier to visualize. Right when you crossed over into Wyoming, there was Fort Laramie, and that was a really big stop for a lot of people. The next big stop after that was in central Idaho at a place called Fort Hall. And so there was quite a bit of distance between those two major stops. Now, if you ran into any trouble or ran short of supplies, there was a little offshoot called Fort Bridger. Right before you got to the Wyoming border, you could jog south a little bit, go to Fort Bridger, get some help, get some supplies, head back up north and meet up with the Oregon Trail again mm -hmm. and start heading towards Fort Hall again. Well, Fort Hall was a really great place to get supplies, but also it was kind of where the trail split. So if you were heading out to Oregon, you just kept heading west. But if you wanted to head down to California, it was just past Fort Hall where the California Trail met up. And that trail traveled southwest through Nevada and into California over the Sierra Nevada mountain range. These were established trails, but not without their hardship. One mm -hmm. of the big issues was timing because of the seasons, because of the weather. You wanted to make sure that you were on the trail in spring, not too early because you didn't want to run into snow, but you wanted to make sure that you were through the mountains by the time winter hit. So right. that trail took four to six months, depending on how much hardship you had. So you really had to keep going and you really wanted to stick to these trails and you really wanted to, to make sure that you had the resources and supplies that you needed to get you all the way through. Yeah. So this was in 1846 that the Donner-Reed family 
was traveling west on this trail. They were heading to California, so ideally they would have taken the trail till it met up with the California Trail and headed south, right? Mm -hmm. That ideally is what they should have done. Well, new that year was a different trail, an offshoot, if you will, a shortcut, maybe you can even call it. A guy named Lansford Hastings had surveyed a trail that started at Fort Bridger, that little offshoot that I talked about. And it yeah. cut around Salt Lake across Nevada and met up with the California Trail much further south than the Oregon Trail. So he was saying this okay. was a shortcut. What Hastings was doing because this was new was he sent guys out to the Oregon Trail on horseback to hand out flyers to those traveling west. Advertising his trail. Exactly. That's interesting. Yeah, pretty much saying like, hey, this is a shortcut. Just come to Fort Bridger. Get your supplies. I'll take you on this trail. I'll guide you. It's cool. Don't worry about it. We got this. Let's go. It's a shortcut. If you're heading to California, this is the way you want to go. This trail essentially, like I said, out of Fort Bridger, but it crossed over a part of the Rocky Mountains called the Wasatch Mountains. Then it went across Utah and the Salt Lake, around Salt Lake and across desert. It was tenuous on its own. But then you also met up with the California Trail in the middle of the desert, which was rough on, it, on yeah. itself. Anyway, Hastings had kind of partnered up with this guy named Jim Bridger, who was running Fort Bridger, had the trading post there yeah. and everything like that. So they, of course, wanted to get more traffic to Fort Bridger and onto this trail so they could work together to drum up more business, right? Mm -hmm. So the Donner Reed party was one of the people that got flyers. And so they discussed amongst themselves, like, is this something we want to do? Well, this party was already towards the end of the wagon train. They had started their journey a little late in the season. Not too late, but a little late. And so... Mm -hmm. They discussed amongst themselves and kind of said, do we want to break off from this much larger group, get off of the trail and take this shortcut? And so as they were discussing this, Reed was saying, heck yeah, let's do this. We can mm -hmm. shave off time and get to California sooner. Don't worry, I'll be the leader of this group and I can help lead us whatever size we end up being. I can help guide us this way along with Hastings. We can do this together. But Reed was not a very liked man. He <laughs> was pushy. He was arrogant. He just was bossy. He just was not, no, people didn't really like him that well. But they did like George Donner, the older mm -hmm. brother. They liked him. And so... The group that decided to break off was like, okay, well, if we break off, we want George Donner to be our leader. George was like, okay, well, if I'm going to be the leader, I'm not sure this is a great idea. I really think we should stick to the trail, the Oregon Trail. And Reed kind of convinced him and others that no, the Hastings cutoff is the shortcut they should take. Yeah. And so ultimately he went along with it. What a hard decision, though. Uh, yeah. You know, to like shave off time, especially if you're already a little late and you're going to be pressed up against the coming of winter. It's like, do we stay with all the other people or do we try to save time? Yeah. 
Like, that's a toss-up. That would be a hard choice to exactly. make. So there had been a journalist traveling with them for a short time. His name was Edwin Bryant. Now, he had traveled with the group, but he wasn't part of the original group. He wasn't really part of the party. Mm-hmm. He was kind of traveling by himself. So he would just kind of, as he'd come along different groups, he'd hang out with them for a while and then move on. Well, he decided that he was going to take the Hastings cutoff, but he was on horseback. So he started Mm -hmm. this trail on horseback and got part of the way down it and was like, this trail sucks. Like there is no way Mm -hmm. wagons full of women and children and supplies are going to make it through this trail. So he actually wrote a letter to the Donner Reed party warning them not to come this way because apparently he had been Hmm. around during the discussion. So he left the note at Fort Bridger for Jim Bridger to give to the group and telling them not to come this way. So he had warned them that it was already not going to be great. Well, on top of that, Hastings, who made promises to those who came this way that he would guide them, he left with a group before the Donna Reed party got to him. So he went ahead and he Mm. left with a group. And by the time that the Donna Reed party had ended up deciding they wanted to do this and decided to leave Fort Bridger, Hastings was already gone. So they pretty much were 11 days behind him and had to kind of follow the trail that he had made. Mm. And so they were kind of thinking, well, we'll catch up to him eventually because we caught up with the others before. So we'll probably end up catching up with him on this trail. So they decided to leave anyways. The problem was, was they never got the letter warning Mm. them not to come this way. Let me guess. Bridger was like, no, I'm not going to give this to them. That's what Edwin Bryant, the journalist, that's what he claimed after all of this happened. He was like, I Uh guarantee you, Jim Bridger did not give my letter to these people Mm -hmm. because no one in the party had any idea that they should not go this way. And so, of course, they're thinking they're going to meet up with Hastings, but Hastings had an 11-day head start. So they were left on their own to just kind of follow Mm -hmm. this very weak trail through this unknown land that really, prior to that season, had really only been traversed on horseback. Yeah. And so that's a whole different thing when it's just... A pack on horseback versus a whole wagon with oxen and kids and supplies and stuff. So, of course, they had a really terrible time trying to get over the very first mountain range. They lost the trail a couple times. They had all sorts of trouble. They had to move rocks off of the trail. Wagons broke. Animals got injured. For the most part, the people fared okay. But it was just a disaster. It took them two weeks to cross the mountain range. And they had burnt through a lot of their supplies Mm -hmm. just because it was so slow going to get across this mountain range. They used up most of their supplies. A lot of stuff got broken. So by the time they got to the desert, they kind of had to reassess. They sat for a day or two and kind of decided, well, where do we go? Do we head back over the mountain range and meet back up with the trail or do we keep going? And... I forget if they met up with a guy who had rode ahead or if they had left a note behind, but they had gotten word that 
hey, once you make it to this point, you have at least two or three days where there's no grass and no water for your animals. So be aware Mm. of that. So they sat there and they debated on what to do. And there were fights breaking out, arguments. People were doubting that they should have gone this way at all. Do they turn around and go back? They lost faith that this was a shortcut at all because it took them two weeks to get this far. They burned through so many other supplies. They were like, oh my gosh, what what do we do? And so they ultimately decided to keep going. And sure enough, crossing the desert was really bad. You know, the animals were weakened terribly. Again, they lost supplies. The days were very hot. The nights were very cold. It was rough. But they did eventually meet back up with the California Trail. They finally found it. Awesome. Hmm. But it ended up putting them a month behind. Wow. So that shortcut was not a shortcut at all. No. So they decided to take a little break once they met up at the California Trail again. The Reed family was actually hit pretty hard when it came to using their supplies and losing their supplies. So what Reed wanted to do was he wanted everyone to pile in all their supplies together and kind of work as a communal thing. And a lot of people Mm -hmm. were like, (laughs) no, dude, just because you lost a lot of your supplies doesn't mean that we need to shortchange ourselves just because you mismanaged your shit. And again, people didn't really like Reed. So the fact that he was (laughs) suggesting this, people were like, F you, dude. Like, no way. Yeah. Maybe if you weren't such a dick, we would be a little more willing to share. (laughs) A A little bit. And keep in mind, like, they'd been on the road for a long time. They'd gone through a lot of hardship. They spirits were pretty low. They just... ugh. They were freaking done with this guy, right? So they actually ended up splitting off into two separate groups. There was the Donner family and a few other people who went on ahead down the California Trail. Mm -hmm. And then the Reed family and a few other people, they were a day or two behind. Mm -hmm. While they were separated, Reed ended up getting into a fight and killing a guy. Like they got into a very heated argument came to blows and Reed ended up stabbing the guy. And this guy that he stabbed was much more liked than Reed was. And so they actually thought Mm. about hanging him. They thought about killing him, like doing all this stuff, stabbing him. Like it was Mm -hmm. really, they really needed to decide what to do with Reed. So actually what they ended up doing was just banishing him. They said, just get out of here. We are so sick of your shit. Get the fuck out. And so they set him packing essentially like he hit he hit the trail he ended up catching up with the donner group and was just kind of like hey i've been banished good luck peace out i wonder if it was just him or like his kids his family too like it was just him kids the family stayed so it was just him (laughs) they didn't like him either (laughs) yeah i don't i don't know what the deal was but the wife and kids ended up staying behind with the wagon train and they just sent rita packing Wow. So what was originally the Reed family group reconnected with the Donner family group. But there was a lot of mistrust. Mm-hmm. There was it, Morale was pretty low. It was it was pretty bleak. Thus far, they had lost over 100 animals. They had used up most of their supplies. They were just feeling really low. They did eventually make it to the Sierra Nevada mountains. 
And so they were thinking, oh my gosh, okay, great. This is going to be hard and we know it, but we're almost done. Like this is going to be the hardest part, but we can make it. We still got a little bit of time left. Let's push hard. Yeah. Well, the Donners broke an axle on one of their wagons. And while George and his brother went out into the woods to try to get supplies to fix it, George ended up cutting his hand. At first, it seemed superficial. And so Mm -hmm. he was just like, I'm okay, no big deal. It hurts, but let's move on. So the Donners were kind of stuck behind, but they had told the rest of the group, you know what, go ahead, keep going. We'll catch up in a day or two. And they're like, okay, great. So they made it over one of the passes, but then the snow started. And they were Mm -hmm. like, well, let's just set up camp and try to wait out this snow and then we'll get to move in again. So they ended up building a couple of cabins and they set up very near a lake. And they were just going to try to ride out whatever storm this was. The Donners were on the other side of the pass. They saw the snow coming. They set up camp about five miles behind on the trail. Now, keep in mind, this was late October. It wasn't actually supposed to snow till mid-November. That's why they thought they had time. But it was just a freak snowstorm. But then it didn't stop snowing. But early enough in the season, they were able to hunt and fish a little bit. But they weren't very good at it. They ate what was left of their animals in the ox and the horses they had left, which had been severely reduced from the desert. And while they were in the desert, some Native Americans had come and taken some of their animals. It was just a whole mess. Like I said earlier, they had lost like 100 animals. So the ones that they had left Mm -hmm. were very weak, very skinny. They ate whatever animals they had left. When they ran out of animals... They started eating shoes and anything that was essentially made out of animal hide. They would try boiling it down to make it somewhat palatable. They just ate really anything they could. And by December, they were very desperate. They were running out of remotely edible supplies. Mm -hmm. So by December, a group of 17 adults decided, we're going to keep traveling west. We're going to try to get out of these mountains and try to get help. And so they had rigged up these makeshift snowshoes and they set out on foot trying to get out of the mountains. Some storms had hit. They got lost. They were snow blind. They were weak, starving. One guy went delirious. He ripped off his clothes, ran into the woods, came back a couple hours later, but then died due to exposure because he ran naked in the snowstorm. So they were so desperate, this small group out exposed to the elements, that they decided to eat those members that died in their group. Yeah. And I will try not to get too graphic with it because what I read was incredibly graphic and a little traumatizing. So yikes. uh, Trigger warning. They did engage in some cannibalism because they were so desperate. They were only consuming people who died. Mm -hmm. There was even talk at some point of perhaps somebody sacrificing themselves or making sacrifices, like drawing out of a hat. And then everyone was kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. Hey, hang on. (laughs) Like, hang on a second. (laughs) I hate to say this, but people are dying of other things. Let's just wait it out. One of you is going to drop dead. Yeah, soon. let's just wait it out. Jesus, <laughs> like what are we? What are we saying right now? It got ugly and weird, and yeah. I can't imagine being in that scenario. But yeah. 
those people that left on foot, it took them 33 days that they were out there and they finally made it out of the mountains and they were so skinny and haggard looking that when they came into a Native American settlement, they scared the people uh, yeah. living there. They were like, what are these creatures? And they were like, no, right. we're human beings. We've just had a really rough go of it. <laughs> like <laughs> the Native Americans helped them, fed them a little bit, even if it was just like acorns and grass and stuff, they fed them a little bit. Of the 17 that left, eight people died and two had turned back pretty early. Yeah, mm. two two people early on were like, fuck this, I'm heading back. Eight yeah. people ended up dying. So what does that make? Only seven people made it out of the mountains yeah. out of 17. That was kind of the beginning of the cannibalism, I guess, that, that happened amongst that party. Now, let's talk about what happened to Reed for a second. So Reed got yeah. banished, right? He went on down the California Trail. He was chilling in California while all this is happening in Fort Sutter. And so he ended up getting there in like early October. He's fully expecting his people to be not far behind him. Mind you, he was on horseback. Yeah. So, I mean, he knew he was going to get there quicker. But once late October, early November starts rolling around, he was kind of like, um, where are my people? Like, where's my family? Yeah. And so he started to get concerned when they didn't make it out of the mountains in the fall. So what he decided to do was he tried to assemble a group of 30 men with some supplies. And they headed into the mountain range. And he fully expected them to be nearby. He fully right. expected them to be on the west side of the Sierra Nevadas. Like, they probably made it through... They're probably a little worse for wear, but for the most part, you know, I think they'll be okay. Yeah. We're going to go find them real quick. Well, the weather made it so where they couldn't get very far into the mountains. So really that rescue party didn't get very far. The snowshoe party that ended up making it out of the mountains, they ended mm -hmm. up making the news. And when Reed heard about that, he decided that in February, because mind you, they left camp in December, made it to the other side in January. It made yeah. the news rounds. Reed heard about it. So then in February, Reed's like, okay, you know what? Spring's a coming. Let's get a rescue team out there. And he took one of the guys that had the snowshoe group that had survived. He took one of them and said, show me where you guys are. Let's go. So they assembled yeah. a group. One of the survivors and Reed went back to rescue the people the first group to be rescued was 21 people on February 18th. Three of them died en route, which sucks so bad. You made it this far. Yeah, and then so close. Oh, gosh. And then on the second trip, 17 were rescued on March 1st. Three more died en route. And then on the final one on March 17th, the remaining five people were rescued. Zero died on that trip, but there was only five of them left. Mm-hmm. And so these three different groups that were rescued were all separated. They had taken a rescue group back to the camps where they had set up camp by the lakes. And okay. so they essentially, Reed and a group of people, went back to those cabins and kind of dug through the snow to find the cabins. And one lady, like, peeked her head up and she was like, are you from heaven or are you from California? <laughs> Because <laughs> she, like, had been buried under the snow in her cabin for months. Yeah. Wow. 
apparently what they saw when they rescued those people was pretty awful. You know, the families that had been left behind. A lot of the men had died. Those people had resorted to cannibalism. Everybody was weak and ill. So the conditions were very filthy. People Mm. were not doing well. Mm. And there had been cannibalism there back at camp. So they started rescuing people a little bit at a time. The Donner Five that were further away, they were the last to be Mm. rescued. But George Donner actually sadly died two days prior to being rescued Mm. because that cut that he got on his hand, the infection turned his arm gangrenous and he ended up dying of blood infection, essentially, after all that. So of the 87 people who took the Hastings cutoff, only 48 survived. Most of Mm -hmm. them were women and children. After they made it back, there were news stories about them, books written, articles. They kind of became famous. But also they were very much ostracized. Yeah. Yeah. They had great shame. They were very highly judged for the cannibalism they had to partake in. So unfortunately, those poor people like couldn't catch a break even once they were rescued and, and made it. Yeah. One of the kids, like teenagers, young teenagers, I believe, ended up dying because when he got back, he gorged himself on food. Oh, and yeah. And died because of that. That was a thought that I had when those, when the snowshoers got, yeah, <laughs> first came out of it. It was like, don't eat too much too fast. So, yeah. if I recall, Hastings got in trouble for that. Or at least they were pursuing charges against him. Yeah. You lied. Hey, Dick. Yeah, you <laughs> lied about what this trail was. You lied about your participation in making sure everybody got across safely. You left these people out here to fend for themselves. And half yeah. of them freaking died. Like, dude. You advertised this trail as being good when it was in no way suitable for wagons. Yeah. So, yeah, I think he got in trouble for that. Or at least they were looking to charging for something. So one of the interesting things was... With all the news stories and they got survivor accounts and there were all these stories about how did you make it? What did you do? What was your thought process? They did all these interviews. Some people were not really willing to talk about the cannibalism because of the stigma of it, you know? Yeah. And it was probably just to like re-traumatize themselves. Yes. So they didn't really like to talk about it. But one of the things a a couple of scientists had kind of looked at who survived. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they noticed was that it was mostly women and children that survived. Pretty much anybody Mm -hmm. over the age of, I think, 49 didn't make it. Toddlers and infants didn't make it. Most of the men died. And there was a thought that men had higher metabolisms and higher protein requirements so they would succumb to malnutrition a lot sooner than women who needed Mm -hmm. a lot less calories and a lot less protein and then you know same with the children and young teens they just didn't need the the calories as much as i mean my kids eat like nothing all day long Yeah. (laughs) yeah so it actually kind of became a little bit of a case study for scientists to look at 
and somebody was even quoted, and I'll I'll paraphrase it, but saying how it was a really good example of natural selection about, (laughs) you know, if you think about women and children in the survival of a species are, quote unquote, more important than men as a whole, because one man can impregnate a thousand women. Nature hates the patriarchy. Nature hates the okay. patriarchy. Exactly. <laughs> but if you think about it, like in, in a nature yeah. standpoint. You need more women to one man in order to like. Yes. So one yeah. of the scientists was like, this is a beautiful depiction of natural selection. Like, <laughs> Freaking scientists twisting right? lunatics. <laughs> and then so, yeah, bad decisions were made on multiple occasions by multiple people. And Reed had started out kind of being an asshole and a lot of people didn't like him and he killed a guy, but he also at the end kind of fought to get people out there to rescue that group. Yeah. And part of it could have been like it was his family out there too, but yeah, he also knew that there were a ton of people out there that needed help. You know, that whole group was in trouble yeah. when they didn't come over the mountains in the fall. He was like, oh shit. So yeah. For all his shitty tendencies, he's the one that went back to gather survivors. So, I mean, I, I'll give him a little bit of credit there. But yeah, holy crap, I've been talking a long time. So I, I will, <laughs> I'll wrap this up nicely with a quote that somebody had written about the whole thing. They said, and I quote, More than gleaming heroism and sullied villainy, the Donner Party is a story of hard decisions that were neither heroic nor villainous. Mm. Which is such a beautiful way to wrap that up. So, yeah, yeah, I don't think I will ever be making Donner Party jokes ever again because this is actually a very (laughs) heartbreaking story. And yeah, and I can't imagine being in that sort of scenario in which you have to make those hard decisions. Good or bad, they were hard regardless. So that's all I'm going to say right now about the... Donna Reed party and the terrible, terrible decisions they had to make. So let's take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor. All right, we are back and it's my turn to talk about a bad decision. Mine is somewhat less tragic. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to talk about the crash at Crush, Mm. which is just like it belongs on a Mm -hmm. T-shirt. The crash at Crush. Which it probably would have been had it happened more recently. (laughs) Because it was a publicity stunt. Really? Yes. So William George Crush worked for the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad, which was nicknamed the Katy. He was the passenger agent. And it was coming up into an economic depression in the late 1800s. And there was a publicity crash of two different trains in Ohio in 1896 by the Hocking Valley Railroad. And William George Crush was like, yeah, let's do Mm -hmm. that. Let's put on a spectacle. We'll make it a huge elaborate event. It'll be free to attend and we'll sell discounted train tickets for everybody to come and see it. And he really went over the top with this thing. So It was in Texas, and they set up a temporary town called Crush, Texas. (laughs) Dude named a town after himself. (laughs) And it was about 14 miles north of Waco, sort of out in the middle of nowhere. And 
so they decided the Katy Railroad was like, well, we're in the middle of turning over our steam engines from these 30 ton engines to 60 ton engines. And we have a ton of these 30 tons just sitting around more than a ton of them. <laughs> Multiples of 30 tons. <laughs> so since we have these sitting around, let's crash them together. <laughs> I mean, why not? We've got them. And uh, George Crush is like, yeah, it'll be great. What could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? So he builds this city and they drilled water wells, really set up a town. They borrowed a tent from the Ringling Brothers and built a restaurant inside of it. They had a huge grandstand, multiple platforms for like photographers and reporters. They had speakers like come and perform they also built a midway that was modeled after the Midway Plaisance in Chicago that was part of the World's Fair. Mm. And they borrowed some of the like attractions from that. And it was just lemonade stands, carnival games, medicine shows, cigar vendors. And that was kind of a, a big part of the attraction it was like, come see this midway all the way from Chicago is here in Texas. It was just a big build up to it. They did a ton of advertising, flyering. They gave discounted tickets for people from all over to come. And they built a separate four mile long stretch of track. That way, a runaway train wouldn't end up on a main track mm. or anything. So they built a section for this, which was a yeah, good that, idea. That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. They really thought they were doing their due diligence here. They had engineers do a speed test for both of the engines so they could calculate exactly where the crash point would be. They had each engine was pulling six boxcars with railroad ties in them to kind of weigh them down. And they didn't trust the couplings on these boxcars, so they chained them together so everything would stay together. And the engineers who checked all this out said... The boilers in them are crash resistant. They are very, very unlikely to explode. <laughs> Famous last words. Foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> so the way they set this up in order to be very safe, as these two 30-ton engines crashed into each other, they said, now, we got to keep the general population back at least 200 yards. Oh, boy. Which seems like not very far, okay? <laughs> but the press could be 100 yards. So we'll let the press get a little closer because they are train crash resistant and as evidenced by nothing. <laughs> they're disposable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're disposable. Their bowler hats, the card they wear in their mm. bowler hats that says press on it, totally makes them impervious to shrapnel. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So this whole thing, as they're planning it, they expect 20,000 people to show up. 40,000 people show up. Uh-oh. Yeah. Making Crush, Texas, the second largest city in Texas for a day. <laughs> they had set the crash up. It was supposed to happen at 4 p.m., but they had to delay it by an hour because the crowds were so big that the police were like, you got to be 200 yards away. And they're like, we want to be closer because we're insane. 
The police had to like push everybody back and the, the crowds were so big. And the way this place is set up, the reason they picked where they did is because it's in like a valley, sort of a natural bowl. Mm -hmm. So really, it was perfect for this because all these thousands of people were able, even though they were standing around, they were a little more elevated around the edges. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like a, it was a valley. It was a bowl. So... It comes time. It's finally five o'clock. All the people are a quote unquote safe 200 yards <laughs> away. And the trains, they have them slowly roll together and touch cow catchers. Mm -hmm. Like uh, the article I read was like, like fist bumps before a boxing match. <laughs> <laughs> so they like touch, they take a bunch of promotional pictures and then they roll both the trains back a mile. And then... Crush was riding around on a white stallion. Oh, boy. Just living it up. He's like, this is my town named after me. All these people are here to see my very good idea. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> Just I'm sure he had a top hat on. If he didn't, I'm going to be very disappointed. <laughs> so it was the number 999 engine painted green and the number 1001 engine painted red they had it all facing down and the crews get them fired up they set it to a preset opening of the steam valve and after four turns of the drive wheel once they were sure things were going they all bailed out and jumped off the train which was probably fun <laughs> they probably enjoyed that the trains got up to 45 miles per hour before they crashed. And I want to read a quote from a reporter who was there describing the sound and, and what happened after. This reporter says, A crash, sound of timbers rent and torn, and then a shower of splinters. There was just a swift instant of silence, and then, as if controlled by a single impulse, both boilers exploded simultaneously, and the air was filled with flying missiles of iron and steel, varying in size from a postage stamp to half a driving wheel, falling indiscriminately on the just and unjust, the rich and the poor, the great and the small. Wow. So... As you can imagine, it was not good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just tons of steel shrapnel flying through the air. Three people were killed. Six were officially injured, though they said like there were dozens who were injured minorly. One of the people who was killed was a teenager named Ernest Darnell, who was up in a tree watching everything and a giant hook come flying through the air and hit him. Wow. Gross. Yeah. The people who were injured were scalded by steam, hit by shrapnel, steel and wood. And one of the reporters who were there, a man named Joe Dean, lost an eye because a bolt flew and hit him right in the eye. Jeez. The story made national headlines. Crush was immediately fired. But then people weren't that mad about it. Like the press was not that negative. They're like, whoops, this thing was pretty cool to watch. But then also a couple people died. But, you know, say la vie. And then <laughs> like, so they just rehired him like a few days later. And he worked out the rest of his career with the Katy Railroad. <laughs> had no consequence for i mean i don't know 
to me, the engineers. Yeah. The ones who said, like, this is fine. They were the ones at most fault, I think. Or the people who decided 200 yards was far enough away. Mm-hmm. So Katie settled with the victims of families and with those who were injured. Joe Dean, the reporter who lost his eye, was paid $10,000 and given a free lifetime pass on the Katy Railroad. <laughs> so the other victims' families, they were paid out with cash and lifetime passes as well. But even paying out those settlements, Katie made out on this. Really? Because 40,000 people rode their railroad to get to this place in the middle of nowhere. Those are all fares that they never would have had. <sighs> so they made they made money hand over fist on this. Plus all the, you know, the money from that people spent while they were there at the Midway and, you know, the restaurant and everywhere else. So it was a net win for them, which is crazy. Something that explodes and kills and hurts people. And that company was like... Nice work, Crush. <laughs> We're very into it. Good job. I'm probably surprised only three people died. Me too. That is surprising. But even reports from the day were that as the dust settled after the explosion, thousands of people who were uninjured ran to the crash site to grab pieces of stuff as souvenirs. Wow. Yeah. And Scott Joplin, the famous ragtime composer of the time wrote a song about it called the great crush collision march i listened to it it is as the kids say a bop (laughs) i mean it's fine it's ragtime (laughs) (laughs) that song is interesting because in the sheet music there are specific descriptions on how to replicate the sound of a train crash with various instruments the part where they did that was pretty interesting because he's like clearly just playing the piano wrong (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like blank 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 that's a train crash <laughs> it, was just, it was very weird there were some reports that he was there and that's why he wrote that but that's kind of unsubstantiated there's a, a historical marker where it happened that they put up in 1976 and despite the death and the disaster that this was People kept doing it. So <laughs> so other railroads staged crashes for another 30 years. So this happened. I don't know if I ever actually said the year that this happened in, but it was it was in 1896. So if I missed out on that. But from 1896 up to 1932, a man named Joe Connolly would go to like fairs and stuff and stage crashes. He staged 70 different wrecks, train wrecks. Wow. Nothing as big and elaborate as the one in Crush with all the midway and everything. It was usually him being like, I got a train. I'll bring it to your party. You can hire me like a birthday clown and I'll crash a train in your backyard, which is so weird. But then in 1932, He did his last train crash. At that time, it was the Great Depression, and people were like, this seems like it's in poor taste. Yeah. Okay. Those things were really expensive. You can't can't do something else with that stuff. You can't let somebody live on it or something. (laughs) Times are tough, man. The fact that they thought it was a good idea to keep crashing these made me think that they probably had the meeting where they're like, eh, what's a few settlement payouts if we could make some serious bank off this? (laughs) 
Exactly. Like, yeah. So I categorize this as a bad decision. Mm -hmm. Okay. People died. It was huge. But if you're looking at the bottom line, it wasn't. It was a win for them. And the attraction continued. And so now we have demolition derbies. Yeah. You know, like, let's wreck some cars and I guess have fun that way. So I'm not surprised that it was an attraction. One of the articles I read did like two pages at the top that were like, listen, this is how bored people were when the, in the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> like, they didn't have a lot to do, okay? There were like sometimes social clubs or whatever, but, you know, they had books, I guess. But the, the chance to see two trains and train crashes were very common. So it also seems kind of in bad taste. Like yeah. people were dying in train crashes all the time, legitimate ones. And they're like, you want to see it? Because I know you keep missing them. It's like, dang it, I missed it again. Didn't get my chance. <laughs> all those people died and I didn't get to see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this was a little snippet of a thing that I saw on, I don't even know where, but I was like, that's ridiculous. And I want to talk about it. So <laughs> that is the crash at Crush, something I consider to be a bad idea. Yeah, I agree. That's probably a pretty bad idea. <laughs> the Katy Railroad was like, meh. But they were all ready to just like blame the shit out of George Crush. They're like, he's fired. He's fired. We already fired him. And people were like, why? We don't even care that much. And they're like, oh, well, then George, get back here. <laughs> Keep up the good work. <laughs> yeah. Nice job, bud. Yeah. So that's, uh, there's corporate America for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's all I had. Uh, luckily, it was short and sweet yeah. since we got into all the gritty details of the Donna Reed party. So yeah, sorry about that. Hope you enjoyed the story. <laughs> no, it's good. I was very interested. <laughs> so, yeah, when you are not trying to make good decisions, what are you doing? <laughs> Where can we find you? I like to think I make good decisions on the farm. My animals are probably like, excuse me, you don't feed me all day, every day by hand. The most expensive <laughs> feeds you'll ever find. So they probably don't agree with my decisions, but... Yeah, if you want to see funny animal content, animal videos, you can find us on TikTok and Facebook, Crimson Moon Farm. You can also go to our website where you can find recipes and other videos and products at crimsonmoonfarm.com. What about you? You got shows coming up? All right. Uh, I do. I'm, I'm going to have a busy fall. So find me on Facebook, Shanda Sung, Instagram, Shanda.Sung, TikTok, Shanda S. Panda. I'm technically on Twitter, but I haven't been on there in a while. Uh, that is also Shanda S. Panda. If you want to read my old tweets, I guess, they're there. And you can find this show, the podcast, at Passing Notes with Ashley and Shanda on Facebook and Instagram and on TikTok at Passing Notes Podcast. Follow us. Let us know what kind of bad decisions you've made. <laughs> we want to hear about them. Yes. Yeah. What have you crashed into something else? Yeah. We want to hear. Did you move out of state for a significant other? Uh, yeah. Did you regret it? <laughs> <laughs> or did it turn out Give okay? It, tell us your regrets. Yeah. <laughs> what are your regrets? <laughs> Let's get deep with it. Yeah. Yeah, but hit us up. Find us on social media. And thank you for listening. And I hope you share this show with your best friend. Absolutely. And like every week, I want to thank my husband, Tyler, for helping us record, edit, and produce this show. I hope we never find ourselves in a situation where I have to eat you. 
<laughs> he gave a thumbs he up. He agrees. <laughs> And of course, we want to thank you all for listening. This was episode 72. We hope you enjoyed it. I know it got a little dark at times, but hopefully you were entertained overall. For Shanda Sung, I am Ashley Morgan. Join us next time on Passing Notes with Ashley and Shanda. Ew. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be nasty. Ew. Ew. Come on. Come on. Come on. This is a family show. Don't be crude.